never forgotten on the morning of the Grenfell Tower fire, I, I went up there and it was still smoking and, and occasionally burning. And I went into the local church, which had been turned into a sort of refuge center, and there's Nicky Campbell behind the table and, you know, sorting out blankets. We do, that's because of who Jesus is, isn't it? You don't do it to look good. You do it because Jesus washes feet. So it's the best place to be. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Leadership Conversations with Nikki Gumbel. I'm Shayla Visser, Senior Vice President of ALF International, and we are so glad you're with us. Today, Nikki is sitting down with his friends, Archbishop Justin Welby and his lovely wife, Carolyn. I'll hand it off to Nikki now to introduce them. The most reverend and right honourable Justin Welby became the Archbishop of Canterbury in 2013. He was previously Bishop of Durham, Dean of Liverpool Cathedral and a Canon of Coventry Cathedral, where he worked extensively in the field of reconciliation. Before he began training for ministry in 1989, Archbishop Justin worked in the oil industry for 11 years, five in Paris and six in London. He's a member of the High Level Advisory Board on Mediation for the United Nations. He's the author of Reimagining Britain and Dethroning Mammon, both published by Bloomsbury. Archbishop Justin is married to Caroline and they have five children and four grandchildren. They're an amazing couple and both of them are doing astonishing work all over the world. We're so thrilled to have them with us today. Welcome to Justin and Caroline Welby, the 105th Archbishop of Canterbury. What I realised uh, today is I think I have known both of you, each of you, for longer than you've known each other. Yes. So I knew Justin before he met Caroline, and I also knew I knew Caroline, and I, actually I knew Caroline before you met Justin, and actually Caroline, I knew your parents um, even before I met you, because uh, your and tell us tell us a bit about your family because your dad Douglas Eaton was on the Kensington Chelsea Council with my mother. And one of my earliest memories is them coming to dinner in our home. No. So, no I don't think I knew that. So um, um, uh, he was 33 years on the Kensington Chelsea Council and was the councillor for the Brompton Ward. So the ward in which we are now, Holy Trinity Brompton, he was the councillor. He was a, a lovely man. He loved doing all of that. And I, I remember your mother when she was met. And uh, but we met uh, Nikki. I think um, we were in a Bible study group together yes. when I was just exploring. Um, yep. I didn't know which way was up, and you were there uh, on the day that I became a Christian. So yes, yeah. I remember it so well. So Carol, how did that happen? I mean, how did you get to that? That it was in Sandy Miller's house, wasn't it, in Onslow Square? But what brought you there? Um, my sister. And uh, my sister was a student in Durham and um, she had met Sandy and uh, she was a Christian and I was about to go to university and I was just on the edge of um, wanting to know more. I didn't think I could do that. I thought it was all about being good and trying hard and I knew that that wasn't going to be possible and so she brought me to a new Bible study group that Sandy had 
started and um, he just knew and he took me into, uh, took us both into his study and he just said, it's not about, um, this is the beginning of a relationship and it doesn't matter if you fail, you know, and it just, it just changed the whole way in which I understood what uh, being a Christian was. That was the so beginning. This would be 1976? Yes. Uh, and just what happened to you that day? What, what was the experience that you had? Well, I just remember him, him saying, um, we had our eyes shut and he said, I want you to bring to mind, you know, let things come to your mind that you need to say sorry for. And I can just remember having my eyes screwed shut and thinking, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to find, I, I, and I couldn't think of anything. And as, as, as that happened, he said, you know, um, you know, this is a commitment God makes to you. And um, you know, um, um, and he promises never to leave you. And it was just the most amazing relief to realise it wasn't up to me. It was it was it was God's promise to me, um, and it was about relationship. And what happened from there? <laughs> because you were about to, well, you were about to go to Cambridge, weren't you? I was about to go to Cambridge, and that was the catalyst because. Um, uh, you know, uh, it was a bit of a um, um, transition point. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't trust myself terribly much and I didn't know who I was going to meet. And Sandy then behind the scenes, Justin came to see him. Um, because Justin was a young Christian too. And Sandy and Annette Miller told him about me. And so that was the beginning Um as our best man put it, Justin slightly misunderstood his task. And um, so wasn't, here we wasn't are, just, 40 something years later. Wasn't Justin given, given the task of looking after you when you came to Cambridge? Yes. yes. And, and, it, and he's looked after, well, I hope he's looked after you. <laughs> Other way around. <laughs> so, so, that, so did you actually meet in London or do you meet in Cambridge? We met in Cambridge. We, he and his friends uh, used to invite a whole load of people to supper before an evangelistic talk. And um, um, so I went along to meet Justin and his friends and all the other people that he'd invited that, that evening, or a lot of people. So that was your first date? That was your first date to go to an evangelistic talk? <laughs> you know, it's how to give a girl a good time. So. <laughs> and, <laughs> never ever took me a, to a ball, I have to say. Never <laughs> took me to a ball. <laughs> and, um, and so how much, how much later were you, were you married? Three and a quarter years, not long. <laughs> so, by that, so Justin, you had... So um, I've known you for also for a very long time back in back in that same college at um, at, at Cambridge. Um, just uh, t well, tell us the story from your. How did how did you come to faith? I'd been in Kenya during my year off. I'd met people who seemed to have not just a belief in God, but a faith, a relationship with Jesus Christ. What Caroline said. Yeah. And when I came back to England and went to Cambridge, I sort of ran away from that. Uh, and then uh, at the beginning of my second year, a guy called um, Nick Hills 
who we both know, yeah. uh, invited me uh, to go along to one of these evangelistic addresses. And I can't remember the address. And I think he was a bit disappointed. Well, I certainly didn't find anything particularly that grabbed me. But a couple of weeks earlier, I'd been to uh, a breakfast time thing with three Ugandan bishops, one called Festo Kivendri. Um, and I had been gripped by that. Hmm. As I'd been gripped by what I saw in Kenya. Uh, and sharing a very small house about the size of this room, probably a little bit bigger, with um, uh, someone who was a Christian and for whom the most important part of the day was time spent in prayer and reading the Bible early in the morning, and which I couldn't make head nor tail of. And so we, Nick took me to... Nick Hills took me to this thing, uh, to this talk, and we had supper afterwards. And then we talked about it. And it's very like Caroline, because the, the news of Jesus is the same, whoever you are and wherever you are. Um, the circumstances may be different, but the story is the same. And he explained that I didn't have to do anything, that Jesus had done everything for me. And what I had to do was put my life, entrust my life to his hands, not behave in a certain way. It was all that beautiful, I think the most beautiful word in the English language is grace. Yeah. It's all grace. It's all his love offered, which says, trust your future to me and we'll go together. And so... Uh, that evening, very late, just before midnight that evening, one October in, uh, in October 1975, I did pray that prayer. And a sorry, rather like Caroline, sorry, thank you, please. Hmm. Amazing. And it then was. I, you two met up in, in Cambridge, you got married, and and when you, you did some quite exciting things, and you went off and kind of, smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain and all kinds of things. Caroline, tell us about those times. It's all right, you won't get, a, you won't get arrested now. It's, I no, think, no, 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 no. Probably, uh, probably. Funnily, enough, funnily enough, Justin Justin had already done something with this uh, organisation based in Holland. Holland um, has a, a history of, of smuggling Bibles, um, Bibles were at one point smuggled into this country from Holland. And um, uh, so this little organisation was based in Holland and we knew some people. Justin had already spent a summer there. He had already committed to go somewhere in Eastern Europe, uh, which, of course, in those days, um, uh, the Iron Curtain and Bibles... Uh, in very short supply, if at all, and a lot of persecution of Christians. And I know I, I spent quite a lot of time praying and, and uh, pondering as to whether this was the right thing for me to do with him, because it seemed a very big thing. It was a, it was a trust thing. And um, you had to learn where you were going. You couldn't take any addresses with you. 
and um, we took little camper vans with secret compartments. I mean, it sounds terribly cloak and dagger. It was it was quite quite. You were sort of on on the edge and praying hard as you went. It was into. dangerous. It was a dangerous thing to do in those days. You could get arrested. Yes, but it was much more dangerous for the people in those countries who were putting their lives literally at risk and their families' lives at risk by being willing to receive things. We would have had an uncomfortable few hours and then we would have just been expelled. Um, but it was a very, it was, it was a very um, um, growing couple of seasons that we did that. And, Presumably, um, they were very grateful to get the Bibles. They were. They were. We we took the second time. We took Christian literature because that was in, in even less supply, wasn't it? It was. And um, I mean, it's hard to recollect for us now. These were not slightly authoritarian regimes. This was totalitarian communism, and. They had at many times stopped churches meeting. Uh, they prohibited the printing or distribution of Bibles. They arrested church pastors. They forbade anything to do with work with youth or children. Um, it was a, they were cruel, very dark and wicked regimes. And I was reminded of that um, uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, we were in Berlin and we spent um, an evening with um, some members of our wonderful Schumann community, mm -hmm. some of whom live here. And they um, um, uh, uh, come from all denominations. And um, there were a number of people um, at this gathering, and one of them, Justin, was asking questions as to where they came from, and one of them said uh, that she and her husband met in a certain village, and then she said, um, uh, which had been in eastern East Germany, and and she said something, and it was so matter of fact. She said, "Well, my father couldn't go to university because he was a Christian, huh. so he was a carpenter." And it was, there was no judgment in it. This was the norm, but the persecution of a whole family for their faith was um, a reality. And when you were praying and thinking, just say something about the Isaiah passage. Oh, yes, now um, you'll have to tell me where it is. <laughs> um, Isaiah 58, would it be? I think it's 58 or 56, yeah. Um, I probably won't be able to remember um, uh, what I Fast, and true, what, is this the fast? There we are. Yes, is this not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Um, and it goes on like that. And that's, that's the passage that um, seemed to say to me that this was a good thing to do. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. And then you started to have ch children. You've had six children. I mean, that's that's um, quite a quite a demanding a life. Quiverful. A quiverful. A quiverful. And 
um, and then um, Justin's you're you're off in the in the city um, making your Certainly fortune. Not. I was oh, in the oil industry. Oh, the oil industry. So sorry, not the city. Not the city. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to have suggested. Um, Alf, uh, well, five years. Oh, Eleven years in, enough for the city. Eleven years in the oil industry. Five years with Alf, was it? I was in Paris uh, for five years. Three of them together with Caroline, and uh, working for a French oil company called Alf Aquitaine, and then um, six years in England. A year with Elf and five years with a British company called Enterprise Oil. But at that stage, I remember. At that stage, you were you were part of HTB. You were you were. Um, I think you were running a group here and and so on. And um, you were, you know, you were you were hugely um, successful. You're far too modest to say it, but you you could have had quite a sort of comfortable life um, making your fortune. Uh, but you chose a different course. Uh, and what, what was and, and also, Justin, I think during that time you had some both of you have had quite powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit. So could you just say a little bit about that, how the experience of the Holy Spirit and how that led you to a different a different path? Ooh, um, and there are all sorts of things that happened. Um, uh the experience of the Spirit was the work of the Holy Spirit when we went through a very difficult time in the family of healing and restoration, but also a very clear sense one evening um, hearing uh, a vineyard pastor who was preaching at HDB talking about um, the way that God had called him to ordination. Um, uh, and he, uh, and that sort of sense of God saying, that's what I want you to do. Hmm. And that was, it wasn't knock you down stuff. Um, it was just very powerful. And I think, I mean, the other, the sort of whole healing process and restoration process was again something that, particularly through the ministry of John Wimber and uh, his wonderful brother-in-law and sister, um, that the, uh, of, uh, the liberating power of the Spirit to liberate us from guilt, from not from suffering or grief, but from guilt and from... Um, um, from oughts, from constantly feeling I ought to be like this, I ought to be like that, which is something into which many of us continually slip back, including me. But is it's really important that uh, one saw in their leadership that capacity to liberate people to walk with Christ. Because walking with Christ is uh, is the truest freedom that could possibly be and yet the whole tendency of the institutional church is to place duties on us mm. and uh, slavery to Christ is true freedom mm. and our own freedom is real slavery I mean that's clear in, in scripture so that was my side of it 
Caroline, when, when Justin put himself forward for ordination in the Church of England, um, I think he got very firmly, very firmly rejected. What did you... Wasn't it, didn't the bishop say of the thousand people he'd interviewed, you were the least qualified to be an Anglican clergyman or something? No, he said... No, 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 we mustn't exaggerate here. He said, I've interviewed more than a, he said, I've interviewed more than a thousand and you don't come in the top thousand. <laughs> so, so you were... There we they, are. They, they, didn't, they didn't want you as to be ordained in the Church of England. And what did you feel about all of that, Caroline? Did you think, oh, hooray, he won't have to be ordained now? Or do you think, um, or did you see it as an obstacle on the way? Uh, I think I saw it as a bit of an obstacle along the way, but that's not to say that I thought it was the best thing that he could do to, well, that I wanted him to be ordained. It just so happened that when we prayed about it, um, um, we wrote... We had a sheet of paper and we wrote on one side of the paper pros and one side of the paper cons. And the cons list got longer and longer and longer. Um, but the pro um, just had one thing, which is if this is what God wants, there isn't anything better. So by the time uh, he had that little setback and we had more than one setback, uh, uh, if I'm honest, though, Nikki, I mean, this is something about discernment, I, which I think uh, I've learned quite a lot about since. We were called to push on a door, and if Justin had been rejected, that wouldn't necessarily have meant that, um, you know, that, that wouldn't necessarily have meant that either we had misheard or that people had got it wrong, because we can't discern. Uh, whether Justin should be ordained, because that is the church that discerns. We have to put ourselves forward, and that's that's what we did. And uh, it so happened that um, that bishop was having an off day, and, and <laughs> the um, and the um, the process continued. And um, after no, audit, I wasn't terribly looking forward to it. I have to say. <laughs> and and but and and when you were. I mean, you went, you went off and trained and then you, you went, but you went to some quite tough areas, didn't you? I mean, it was quite a change in lifestyle for you, having been a, in the, the sort of oil executive to the, to the curate in, in some quite tough areas. The, for all kinds of reasons, I wasn't really wanted back as a curate in the Kensington Darson area by the same bishop. Um, and um, we were therefore, as they say, released um, to look elsewhere, and which, which we did. Uh, we didn't look very far because I had got to know someone who I didn't know at the time, but his father was Archdeacon of Coventry. And I met him and then got this letter saying, would you be interested in having a look at a parish in Coventry Diocese. So we went and looked. I think I went first by myself, and it was, as you say, it was a bit different. It was the most, in the end, it was the most amazing place. God could not have put us in a better place. But the bishop was so, Bishop of Coventry, Simon Barrington Ward, was so... Yes brilliant because he said 
you've spent your life doing things and with people who do things, you need to spend time with those who have things done to them. Hmm. You need that experience of being in a very different setting. And he was so right. And it was an enormous gift. I had a wonderful training incumbent, wonderful trainer who was my boss, the vicar. Um, it was at the time a, a fairly rundown. It was post the 91 recession. And we had uh, three, it was very good for teaching the trade, as it were, lots of funerals. We did about 160 funerals a year. A big hospital in the middle of the parish, lots of schools, lots of school assemblies, weddings, baptisms, regular services. And uh, it was quite an experience, quite an experience. And our children went to the local schools. I was reading... Um... Your the first major biography of Archbishop Justin Welby by Andrew. And he says that when you were in one of your parishes, you were known as Mr. Alpha. And I know you you did also that you went to Africa. You did you you were amazing. You were sort of like a regional advisor. And um... I wasn't amazing at all. I would love to see that almost, except in the most unusual circumstances, every church gathering, whether whatever it is has something like Alpha, and Alpha's the one I know best, um, so that people who are inquiring about what it means to be a Christian, where God has begun to warm their hearts, can find a way, a safe place to ask every question they want without ever being judged, and to hear the Christian faith laid out before them in a way that is really clear, very straightforward and accessible and relevant to them. And I think from my point of view, the, the genius of Alpha is that it's been done in the smartest churches in England. It's been done in the poorest churches in England. I even taught Maasai leaders how to do Alpha hmm. at one point in Tanzania. Wow. And provided, you know, you may change the illustrations a bit, as it were, but the structure and the fact that it encourages you not to believe a set of dogmatic presumptions, though the faith is clearly in that, the Christian faith in its doctrine is very clearly in that, but it leads you to expect to develop a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. And that is something God does perfectly for every human being. It, it, God is the ultimate bespoke maker of lives. They are never mass produced. They're never off the peg. They are perfect for every single human being. And, and somehow, particularly with the Holy Spirit day or weekend or whatever you do, somehow people meet with God 
in Christ so beautifully and powerfully and transformingly at that time. Uh, and, and so who wouldn't do that? I mean, why not? Uh, it, it, it's very easy to use. We did a lot of cooking, made a lot of cake. And we, we, did you hear that? <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. You. <laughs> and the other thing, I think the small groups, I mean, well, Nikki, you've done this a billion times and I've done it about 40. Um, but the small groups, the rule you taught in the small groups was very straightforward. Every question is permitted, provided it's not abusive, obviously. Mm. And the, the great thing someone, I think it may have been you, said when you get a question you don't know the answer to, you say, that's a really good question. What do other people think? Mm. And you wait and see what happens. And we just found doing Alpha that people were so released by the fact they could ask anything yeah. and know they wouldn't be judged. Yeah. And it changed the culture of the church because it made people much less prone to judge one another, hmm. <laughs> you know, because you were used to the fact that you didn't judge one another. Yeah. It gave people a vocabulary too within the church. You used to call it a, what did you used to call it? I used to call it 20,000 mile service. I know, much, much longer than that. Or 200,000 mile service. But we did, a, we did it a lot with people in the church they didn't have a vocabulary. They didn't. They they came to church, and they knew it was important, but they couldn't explain why. And it gave them a vocabulary, and they suddenly realised what they'd been hearing, what they'd been li listening, yeah, that's right. what they'd been listening to all their lives, and it suddenly made sense. I remember a wonderful sort of conversation in a small group. Um, you know, the first thing this person said, do you mean to say Jesus didn't sin? You mean, he didn't sin. And this was somebody who had never not come to church. But, but you know, and it just opened opened a vista for her that she'd never, she'd never looked at before. So you ran They're really beautiful. You ran it for people, uh, as well as people outside the church. You, you, you also include people. Both and. Yeah. Both and. And uh, during that time, or maybe it's slightly later, well, well, or, uh, I think probably simultaneously, you were also doing these these reconciliation trips to um, in Africa, um, and getting getting um, like kidnapped, or where you can. I mean, it must be pretty terrifying for you, Caroline, wasn't it? That that um, Justin was in again. Uh, you had a little bit of danger maybe when you were smuggling Bibles, but now this was serious danger. Justin was getting sort of. Um, and you were you were back in England. What? How did you feel about all that period of Justin's life? This was while we were at Coventry. Justin was uh, part of the um, Ministry of Reconciliation at Coventry Cathedral, part of, and 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 his remit was was Africa. So he, he did a lot of travelling um, in Africa, um, and um, yes, it's interesting uh, that question. Hmm. <laughs> Didn't you get some phone calls um, to say like this is quite 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 bad? I did. I did. I tend to be an optimist, Nikki. I um that certainly focused the prayer. Um but um um 
Corrie Ten Boom, you will you will know, um, uh, in her um, The Hiding Place book, there's a very interesting thing about um, when she's a child and she's asking, um, I can't remember how it comes about, but it's about trusting God and, and faith. And her father says to her, if we're going on a journey, um, uh, when do I give you, and on the train, when do I give you the ticket? And the answer is when I need to get on the train. And um, uh, actually, I was far more worried in our early married life by the fact that Justin was flying all over the world. And I got really um, concerned about that and worried uh, not being a terribly keen flyer at the best of times. And that, that illustration from Corrie Ten Boom helped me then, and it helped me when Justin was um, at the edge of a, at the end of a gun or whatever. Mm. And um, fast forward, 2013, you're being, what is it, what, is it enthroned? Enthroned in Canterbury Cathedral. You were so sweet. You, you very. I had the huge privilege of staying with you um, when that happened, and I, I, it was an unforgettable moment. You know, surrounded by all those bishops with Prince Charles and all the other sort of establishment and and everybody else um, there, and a wonderful, wonderful moment. Um, and I remember you saying that the anointing followed the. Pointing, or you didn't maybe use that expression. But that was basically what you were saying, um, something along those lines. It was so unlikely that I'd be appointed. I'd been a bishop only. I mean, when I was announced, I'd been a bishop just on twelve months and a week, or something, two weeks, or something like that. And um, uh, I'd been in post uh, as a diocesan bishop for eleven months or something like that. And so it was really ridiculous. So somehow we didn't ask the question, but again, the, there was a real God moment, wasn't there, for you when I was offered, when I was told that I'd been appointed? Uh, yes. While Justin was Bishop of Durham, we were living, uh, I was still living in uh, Liverpool with um, our two daughters and um, commuting backwards and forwards across the Pennines every weekend. And I had just um, done some shopping in Tesco's before making this journey. So it was a Friday evening and I got back to the car and I'm told that Justin has run. And there's been a bit of a hiatus between him being um, interviewed and the appointment being announced. And so he rings me up, um, or I ring him back, and I'm in the car. My phone is not very good, so everybody can hear what's going on. And he says, hello. And I say, hello. And uh, um, he says, it's me. And I knew what that meant. Uh, he had been chosen, so I said, oh, no. And he said, oh, yes. Uh, oh, no. And so this carries on a little bit. And the phone, the conversation can be heard. And there is consternation in the car. That's the only way I can say it. And uh, at the same time as this conversation, there is a downpour. And we're in an outside car park 
which is raised, and it is at the level of the roofs of the terraced housing opposite. And the rain is coming down, and we're having this conversation, um, and all of a sudden the sun comes out. And across the, the roofs, there is this enormous, perfect rainbow. Wow. And... Um, uh, I think it was just gift, gift from God to say, yeah. um, "I'm in control. This yeah. is this is okay. Yeah. It's perhaps not as much unknown as you think it is." Mm. There's so many highlights since then, but I mean that that you was again, you were so kind. You took me on uh, to carry your bags when, on one of your visits to the Pope, and um, uh, it was a huge privilege. And you you kindly introduced me to Pope Francis, uh, but. I think your relationship with Pope Francis is 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 an amazing thing. And uh, just say about the the very first, because I think it was two days before you that he was, whatever he is. Um, and, but didn't he, he made a bit of a he joke. He was installed. Didn't he? And I was installed. Yeah. Didn't he make a bit He's of a two joke? Days, he made the first time we met. He started off the conversation by saying, "I'm senior to you," <laughs> and I. I thought, I honestly, he fooled me completely. He's got a fabulous sense of humour. And I, I said, of course, your holiness, thinking, how disappointing. <laughs> uh, and he said, and he said, by two days. <laughs> so we both giggled away. And the next time he started with a joke as well. And, um, and I mean, but we've had some really wonderful discussions and there was... I think with him, the moment that is totally unforgettable is we'd worked here, there's a reconciliation team here who do the most remarkable work. And um, with them, uh, I'd worked, uh, we'd worked um, with the Foreign Office and the UN others, we'd worked to get the leaders of the different sides in the civil war in South Sudan, which had killed 400,000 people um, to meet and working with the Vatican and the Pope and I and the moderator, uh, the head of the former moderator of the Church of Scotland, Presbyterian, there's a lot of Presbyterians in South Scotland, did a joint invitation. And typical of the Pope, he doesn't insist that it's the Pope with, it was all three of us yeah. at the same level. That was his choice. And we invited them to Rome for a retreat, uh, about six of them, and, uh, and, and the main religious uh, Christian leaders from South Sudan. Anyway, we, it was a very close-run thing. Uh, the story is too long to tell, but it was an extraordinary moment. And I was, one of the high points was me, I was doing a mission in um, a diocese, in Peterborough Diocese, and I was in um, Northampton, just about to go into a huge gathering in a school assembly late one evening, and I was on the phone to the UN Secretary General asking him to get the main rebel leader out of Khartoum <laughs> um, for the meeting the next day. So it, it had its slightly dramatic moments. And they came, it was a miracle. They all came. And we did these two days. And on the second day, the Pope 
gave a talk on the gaze of Jesus, hmm. that Jesus looks at us and sees us. Hmm. It was utterly beautiful, utterly mesmerizing. And at the end, he stood up from behind the table where the three of us were sitting. They were opposite of us, us in the room, not a big room. And they all stood up. And he went round and he literally fell on his knees in front of them and kissed their feet hmm. and prayed and said, I beg you, make peace with one another. Hmm. And I don't think there was anyone in the room who was not in tears. Hmm. I mean, that was the power of the spirit in that moment. But I mean, if you think back at the history of, of the church down the centuries, it's amazing to think that the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope are great friends and have a fantastic relationship and love each other and admire each other and work together. I mean, that's a, that is a phenomenal achievement of church unity. It's not about sort of getting lots of documents necessarily, but it's about relationship, friendship. It's about friendship and relationship and, and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. I mean, you've got Presbyterians and Anglicans yeah. and Catholics. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And there we all were, Unity working together. Yeah. Unity in Christ. Yeah. Absolutely. And your friend, um, Rhaenyra de Cantalamessa, Father Father Cantalamessa. Father Yes, Cardinal. He's suddenly gone from being Father Raniero to Cardinal Raniero. That's that's he's, quite. He's that's Car even faster than you, Justin. That was, that was <laughs> like, that's like. But he is. Um, he is. Uh, yeah, I'll never get to Cardinal. That's pretty sure. <laughs> and he. Um, he. Uh, uh, he gave. I'm invited him to preach at the opening of the Church of England General Synod in 2015 in November. And at the opening of the General Synod every five years, a very big thing. And the Queen was there and, um, you know, it's a really major, major event. And he started, you were talking about fellowship in Christ. He talked about what the Pope and others have called ecumenism in blood. Mm. And he said, he was talking about persecution and he said, when they persecute us, they don't ask whether we're Anglican or Roman Catholic or Presbyterian or Methodist or Orthodox. They ask, are you Christians? Yeah. Yeah. Very and, powerful. And you say and that we have to hold that. And you've done that brilliantly, so brilliantly with Alpha. Alpha is used by everyone and nobody asks. I mean, most people think it was invented by someone in their own particular church and in your generosity and grace, Nikki, you never, you never sort of say, no, hang on a minute, I like that. Or, you know, all the church <laughs> no, people did nothing, that. Or nothing to do with did that. Lots you just get on with it. No, there are massive people involved, not just me. But you mentioned the Queen there. So, I mean, it's an amazing thing now because, of course, the Supreme is the Queen is the Supreme Governor of the Church of England, your Archbishop of Canterbury. So you have a you have a relationship with her, with the royal family. You're taking royal weddings, doing royal baptisms, and to think of your mother uh, there photographing the Queen as she comes down from the steps, and now here you are. Oh, uh, isn't that it, isn't that it, isn't that extraordinary? It's amazing, isn't it? Um, just that relationship. It, it is, but this is God. 
and then, but also with the, so I mean, you have this relationship with, with the royal family, but also with the um, with the prime minister. Uh, and I love your interview with um, with Piers Morgan when he sort of challenges you and says, you know, why don't you tell Boris Johnson X, Y, or Z? And you say, you know, if I want to say something to Boris Johnson, I'll say it to his face. And I think that's, you know, that's an amazing thing that you have that opportunity to speak to in your position. You have the, the you have a platform where you can actually talk to the prime minister and the, um, and and to other obviously senior senior politicians, it's, it's an extraordinary position that God has put you in, and to be a voice. And also, I loved your interview with with which I've just watched with Alistair Campbell. I think that was that was a phenomenal. Just the the fact that you get the opportunity in your position to speak into the public square in that way, and there's no one else really in the Christian world that has that opportunity that that you two have from your position. Well, there's one or two, but yes, it, it is a huge privilege. And one just has to remember that it's all grace. Yeah. It's all grace. It's the grace of God. And, um, you know, you. I think one of the key things, I've just been reading a wonderful, wonderful book on um, evangelism um, by a guy called Andrew Root. Uh, called Faith Formation in a Secular Age. Um, and he has a marvellous section in there about Philippians chapter 2, um, uh, because uh, which in most Bibles is translated, although Jesus was, in, was uh, uh, equal to God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself and took the form of a slave. And Andrew makes the point very powerfully that although is actually probably in the context of what Paul is saying, because because uh, Jesus because Christ was equal to God, he did not count equality with God because the nature of God is to act in grace and to humble himself and put himself at a level that we can be found by God and can understand in what Calvin called the condescension of God. And I just think, you know, I, I often, coming back to this place, will look at the building and think, what on earth am I doing here? Or going to some grand event. Um, but it is all grace. And the grace of God, holding on to the grace of God and not believing the propaganda about one's own importance or whatever, is the key thing. And that's, t I mean, like, I was so struck by that story, because I know you, you, you uh, now it's public knowledge that you pop into St Thomas's Hospital, which is not far from your, your front door, um, and visit patients. But you were doing it kind of in disguise almost, and then someone spotted it and wrote to the papers about it. And, but I just think that's an amazing thing that you're... you're you are the Archbishop of Canterbury, you are living in Lambeth Palace, you are having to do all these sort of state things, but you're still on the ground, quietly getting on with ministering one-to-one -to, -one to people who are sick in hospital. And that's the sort of illustration. Yes, but that's that. a privilege too, isn't it? Because for someone, I was in there yesterday evening, as it happens, and yeah, when you're praying with someone who's unconscious, they couldn't care less whether you're the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope, Nicky Gumbel, 
or newly joined curate in the local church. Uh, a, they don't, they're probably unconscious, they don't know. If they do know, what they want to know is that you are praying for them and you love them. And that is a basic call of, you know, Jesus says at the end of Matthew 25, in, in the great picture of the, um, uh, the great prophecy of the last judgment, the sheep and the goats, and he, he talks about, when I was sick, you visited me. And um, the rabbis have always said, the Jewish teaching has always been that to visit the sick is at the height of what we do. And I remember, Nikki, I mean, you know this is much better than I do. I've never forgotten on the morning of the Grenfell Tower Far, I, I went up there and uh, Bishop Graham, the Bishop of Kensington was there and all sorts of people were there, lots of firefighters. It was still smoking and, and occasionally burning. And I went into the local church, which had been turned into a sort of refuge centre, and there's Nicky Gumbel behind the table handing, you know, sorting out blankets. Hmm. You know, we do, that's because of who Jesus is, isn't it? Isn't it? You don't do it to look good. You do it because... Jesus washes feet. So it's the best place to be. And Caroline, um, I think, um, well, I, Justin certainly knows this, but um, probably not everybody. Justin couldn't do it without you. I mean, you are, um, I mean, it's amazing to see the way that you have handled all, because again, you're, you are out there, I know you're all around the world meeting the, meeting the bishops' wives and, and uh, doing all sorts of conferences and travelling the world and, and also going to quite dangerous places sometimes, difficult places. So, uh, Karen, what, is, what have you found most difficult about um, your this all of this uh you know the role and what have you enjoyed most i think the most difficult thing is to know what uh what i meant to be doing um uh there is a uh, not that not that anybody would expect it and um choose it but um I was asked very early on, you, you know, what focus I wanted to have as the wife of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I go, ah, I have no idea. I didn't even know. I, is that such a thing? And um, my experience of just in um, the, the period while uh, between when Justin was shortlisted and then interviewed and then appointed and then right into... Um, um, the ministry, I suppose, in 2013, I was doing um, what they call the Ignatian exercises in daily life. And I just realised um, through immersing myself in scripture and particularly during, during that very early period in the story of the Annunciation and the story of Joseph and the story of God's choosing these two remarkable people, I realized that God was saying, it's not just Justin that I choose, I choose you as well. It's not yeah. random. You don't come as just because you're attached. You don't, that's not the way I work. And the church certainly doesn't work that way. It, it looks for the right Archbishop of Canterbury and it really doesn't care. 
who I am. God's not like that. Um, and in the very early days, just, just going around the Anglican Communion and meeting bishops' wives and seeing some of the challenges, of course there are bishops' husbands as well nowadays, but in the Global South it's mainly uh, wives, seeing the expectations uh, placed upon them, but often no training and no equipping, that really uh, touched a chord. And I think it was the idea... Um, that God gave me that it was fine to be myself and, you know, just trying to find out by following where he led, that was all I needed to do. I didn't have to fulfill anybody else's expectations. It was just about putting one foot in front of the other. And that has sort of led to a ministry which we call Women on the Front Line, which is just supporting bishops' um, wives in some of the toughest um, places of conflict in provinces where there are all sorts of difficulties, but really wanting them to, to know that same sense of, from God, I love you, I've chosen you, I have called you, and you're not here as a mistake or as, you know, some random quirk of fate, but but... Yeah, that's that's really what uh, what we hope to do, and at the same time to equip them in a little in a little way in some area of reconciliation training. So um, one foot in front of the other. That's that's the way to go. And the same thing, actually. That's the most that's the most exciting thing. We were asked. I can't remember where we were, but I was asked to. Um, say who my Christian hero was. And it was just after I'd been in the DRC eight, uh, 15 months ago, 18 months ago. And um, I just, you know, these women, just extraordinary, solid, faithful um, Christians. Um, just a privilege um, getting to know them and spending time with them and learning from them as well as, as, as sharing things that we take to them. Thank you so much, Archbishop Justin and Carolyn, for making time to be with us. It's a real honor to have you on as part of the podcast. In just a moment, we're going to share another portion of this interview with you. But before we do, I want to let you know that in two weeks' time, Nikki will be sitting down with Christine Kane. Christine is an activist, author, and a powerhouse speaker. She's the founder of the A21 campaign and Propel Women, and she is a remarkable leader. I look forward to hearing what she and Nikki chat about. Now, before we finish, there's one part of this interview that we haven't shared with you yet. At the end, Nikki asked Archbishop Justin to spend some time praying for anyone listening who wanted to give their life to Jesus. And there was something about this prayer that was so honest and simple that we just wanted to share it with you in this thread. Here's Justin to close us off. God, I'm really not sure about who you are or that much about you. But when I hear about Jesus, that sort of dream that's deep within me that God would find me, even if I'm trying to avoid being found a bit, seems to be possible. 
I know I've got lots of things wrong in life. I don't have to think very hard for the people I've let down, for the standards I've failed to meet. And I'm always sorry about that. I really am sorry, and I wish I hadn't, but I have. And I'm told by all these people that you offer me forgiveness and life and purpose and a future. And I'm not sure I understand how that works either, but if that's true, thank you for that. I'm sorry where I've gone wrong. Thank you. If, if that's true, thank you. And if that means something, because you're God and you love me, please come into my life and be in charge of my life. I'll get everything wrong. I can't live up to all kinds of clever standards. I'm not the right kind of person for you to be with. I'm a real, I'm just aware of my own weaknesses. But do come in and be in charge. Amen. 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 Amen.